0: Text this morning is Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Before I read, let's turn once more to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, that you'd open our hearts to receive the word with all readiness of mind, and that you would set forth the Lord Jesus Christ mightily unto us, that we would be comforted uh, in the work that he's done, in his presence, in the precious promises that he's given unto us, and that we would be made sure and steadfast, uh, grounded, rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ, so that as the billows of affliction may come upon us, we would yet remain planted upon the rock Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. Yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them. Yea, they have taken root. They grow. Yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins, but thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every uh, field wither for the wickedness of them that dwell therein? The beasts are consumed and the birds, because they said, He shall not see our last end. If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the day of peace wherein thou trustest they wearied thee, then how would thou do in the swelling of Jordan? Amen. Thus is the reading of God's word. As Christians, we are the benefactors of many people, Benefits. We are the recipients of many precious promises. Indeed, we are the field, if you will, uh, that bears the much fruit of the Holy Spirit. We are the people of the Lord, the bride of Christ, and so we we might be tempted to think that in this life everything is going to go smoothly. Where we've come to Christ, we've believed on the Lord Jesus. Now all of our problems are solved. No more affliction. No more tears. Nothing to worry about. Well you know from experience that that is not at all what the Christian life is like. And you can say with the psalmist that many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many indeed are the afflictions of the righteous. But as that psalm also says, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. As Christians, we must be afflicted. We, it is good for us to be afflicted indeed. For then we learn the statutes of the Lord, as the psalmist has said. But in these times, we might know this intellectually, but when these times of afflictions come, when we've prayed and prayed unto the Lord for something, when we've sought his face, when we've poured out our complaint before him, and it seems that he's not answering, when it seems that what's going on around us is contrary to what's been revealed in the word, what are we to do? Are we to groan and murmur? And lose faith in the Lord? Or are we to, like Jeremiah, give a godly complaint? Yes, there is such a thing as a godly complaint unto the Lord. There is a murmuring, there is a complaining against the Lord, which is unlawful, which is accusatory, which is faithless. But what we see in our text this morning, where Jeremiah is complaining to the Lord of his affliction, complaining to the Lord of the prosperity of the wicked, is not rooted in unbelief, but rather rooted in in faith. You see, the difference between a godly and an ungodly complaint is this. The godly complaint, in the godly complaint, the Christian, the believer, looks at the world, looks at his circumstances, look at the God's dispensation in his providence, sees that it's contrary to what God has promised in his word and goes to the Lord with an earnest expectation that he's going to answer, that he's going to change. He goes unto him and, and makes an argument, if you will. There's such a thing as an argumentative prayer. where, As we're taught in the larger catechism, we enforce our prayers with arguments taken not from ourselves, but from God himself. And so when we see things, when we see our our children are wayward, we can go unto the Lord and say, Lord, you yourself have said, I will be a God unto you and to your children. The promise is to you and to your children. My child is wayward. My child has forsaken the faith. And we can plead with God on the basis of his promises. And so our theme this morning is pouring out our complaint before God. And we will consider the following doctrine from our text this morning. The following doctrine, that faith under affliction makes its complaint to the Lord, believing his promises, notwithstanding his providences. Faith under affliction makes its complaint to the Lord, believing his promises, notwithstanding his providences. What I mean by that is that when you have the revealed word of God, when you uh, you can take hold of his promises, and what you see in providence might seem to be contrary, but you believe the promises nevertheless. And that really is what is the, the foundation of a godly complaint unto the Lord, as we see here in our text, and as we see throughout the Psalms. And so we're going to consider uh, this text in three, under three headings. First of all, uh, we'll look at verses one to two, Jeremiah's complaint, Jeremiah's complaint in verses one and two. And then in verse three, Jeremiah's petition, what Jeremiah is requesting from the Lord in verse three. And finally, in verses four and five, we will, um, or rather just verse five, we will Consider God's answer to Jeremiah. God's answer to Jeremiah. In, in verses four, 1 through 4, we have Jeremiah speaking, and then beginning at verse 5, we have God's answer. Uh, but first of all, consider the context. Uh, Jeremiah was called to be a prophet from among the priests at Ananoth. An- uh, Ananoth. Um, he was a relatively young man, probably uh, just ordained as a pre- priest within the last few years. And he was hesitant to take up this call, this call to be a prophet. We read in the first chapter that he began prophesying in the 13th year of King Josiah's reign. If you recall, it was in the 18th year of Josiah's reign that the book of the law had been found. That means that in the kingdom of Judah at this time, it was a time of utter degeneracy. Idolatry was abounding. Violence, whoredom, unspeakable sins. The law had been forsaken. Even the priests, which ought to have been teachers of the law, were corrupt. And they did not know the Lord. And Jeremiah was called from among these priests to go and speak against their sins, to speak against the sins of his nations, uh, of his nation, and even the nations round about Jerusalem. And he was called. And he, and although he was reluctant, he said, Lord, I can't speak. I'm just a child. But the Lord said, I will be with you and I will be with your mouth and do not be afraid of their faces. So from the outset, we can see that Jeremiah, it was Jeremiah contra mundum, if you will, Jeremiah against the world. It was just him and God. And so as he went into his ministry, went into uh, to prophesy against his nation. Of course, he faced opposition. He faced opposition. The true prophets of the Lord often had to compete with false prophets that would prophesy peace, peace, when there was no peace. When a true prophet like Jeremiah or Ezekiel would come and, and prophesy judgment, the false prophets would rise up and say, No, we are the chosen of the Lord. No evil is going to happen to us. Nebuchadnezzar can do nothing unto us. We have been chosen. And so the true prophets would be Persecuted, And that really is the context of our passage this morning. In the previous chapter, in chapter 11, uh, Jeremiah had just prophesied judgment in his hometown of Anathoth. And the priests there, uh, having heard his judgment, devise a plot to kill him. They have set their face to, to kill him. And this really is what sparks this prayer of Jeremiah, this complaint to the Lord. He's complaining at these wicked men that seem to be uh in the highest stations in society and getting away with it getting away with their evil devices with their idolatries and and on top of it all they are planning to kill Jeremiah as a true prophet of the Lord and so that brings us there then to uh, to, to verse 1 Jeremiah's complaint He says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee or argue with thee, when I make my place with thee. You see, Jeremiah, first of all, note the the character of Jeremiah's complaint. It's modest. It's reverent. And yet it's earnest and desperate. He begins with a preface that acknowledging that God is righteous, you are righteous, O Lord, when I plead with you. I know, Lord, that everything you're doing is right and true. You are the holy God that does right in all the earth. And yet, I need to enter into a conversation with you with what's going on here. Why are the wicked prospering? Why do they seem happy that are dealing so treacherously? And so that really is the nature of a, or the character of a godly complaint. It is even in the midst of affliction, in the midst of uh, of pressing circumstances, it remains reverent. An unlawful complaint is rooted in, a, in blasphemous thoughts against God. God, you're unrighteous. You don't love me. You're not faithful. You don't answer prayer, but this is not Jeremiah. Yes, he complains, but his complaint is tempered with modesty. Tempered with modesty. That's the character of his complaint. But notice the content of his complaint. It is a complaint that the wicked prosper. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Let me talk with you. Let me reason with you about the things that you are doing In the earth, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Every Christian, probably at some point in their life, wrestles with this question. I'm a Christian. I've done those things which the Lord has called me to do. I've separated myself from the world. I've denied myself, and yet I'm struggling while it seems that the wicked have no problems in their life. And on the surface, that this might seem like a lack of faith. But really, it's grounded in faith. Maybe a weak faith, but it's grounded in faith. Why is that? Because faith under these afflictions, as it looks to its circumstances, it remembers the things that God has said, God has promised. Children, it would be as though mommy has promised to take you to Chick-fil-A. And it's Monday afternoon, it's four o'clock, and she hasn't taken you. She seems to have forgotten you. You're you're going and you're saying, Mommy, you said this, and it's time to act. And so faith, under these afflictions, makes its complaint to the Lord, still holding on to his promises, even when providence seems to be contrary. Jeremiah knew that the word of the Lord pronounces judgment against the wicked that all those that deal wickedly will be cut off from the land of the living he knew his psalter psalm 37 for example psalm 1 for that matter but yet he looks and he sees and he sees not that the wicked are, are rooted out and 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 are like chaff in the wind but they seem to be planted by the lord himself verse 2 thou hast planted them yea they have taken root they grow They bring forth fruit. Of course, this is a similar complaint to ASAP's in Psalm 73, where he complains that the wicked seem to be at ease, to have abundance. In Psalm 17, the, the wicked have an abundance of children. And so the psalmist and Jeremiah. Seeing these things and having a a genuine expectation that this is not the way things are supposed to be, this is not what has been revealed in the word of God, comes to the Lord, complaining. In Jeremiah's case, these men sought his life because he prophesied against them in the name of the Lord. And they said, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord anymore, or you will die at our hand. And so Jeremiah, feeling the pressure, feeling the anxiety of persecution, of his life being threatened by these men from his own town, these would have been his colleagues, men that he, if you will, went to seminary with, was ordained with, and now they want to kill him. Even though they are idolaters, wicked, forsaken the law of the Lord, And God has said that he would be with him. And so Jeremiah, seeing his situation, seeing the threatenings of the wicked, has a faith in God. That he will relieve his affliction and be faithful to his promises, be faithful to what's revealed in his word, that he is a righteous God that punishes the wicked and, and saves the righteous out of their affliction. This is Jeremiah's complaint as he looks upon his present circumstances. And then as we come to verse 3, we see his petition. He says, but thou, Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. He says, Lord, although these wicked men seem to prosper, although these wicked men seem to be, be, be planted and have no fear of God, you know me. This is not a self-righteous prayer. This is not something that's rooted in uh, works righteousness, as though Jeremiah had a righteousness of his own upon which he could ground his prayer and his pleadings. No, rather, he is one that has been called out by the Lord. The Lord himself said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and called you and ordained you a prophet. And the same is true for all believers. We may not be called to be prophets, but we are known but from before our mother's womb, and we were called by his name. The Lord knows those that are his and knows how to deliver them out of trouble. The Lord has entered into a covenant with his own, and his eye is upon his people, and he tries their heart toward them. Indeed. And so because Jeremiah, not because he has a righteousness of his own, but he as all Old Testament saints looked ahead to Christ Jesus, the same Christ that he prophesies of throughout this book. And being clothed in that righteousness of Christ, being drawn and chosen by the Lord's electing love, having the precious promises that are his hope, he is able to petition the Lord to fulfill his own word. And he says, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. This afflicted man, and and this affliction really as we're going to see, was one of the lighter afflictions in his life. But he's able to come unto the Lord and plead with him, petition him to execute his judgment upon these wicked men that would seek his soul. Men from his own hometown, his colleagues, his co-laborers, or or ought to have been his co-laborers in the ministry of the word and sacrament, that now sought to take his life. And so he's able to pray against them, even though it appears that they're established, even though it appears that they are planted by the Lord. Jeremiah was a man of a melancholy disposition. A righteous man amidst a wicked nation, the author of the lamentations, who bemoaned the destruction of his people, the destruction of the daughter of Jerusalem. He saw, he pleaded with them. He preached unto them the gospel, even. We see how clearly set forth the gospel is is in Jeremiah chapter 31, for example and yet they hardened themselves. He he rose up early to plead with them, and yet they would not hear. And this was heavy upon his soul, that they would respond to his pleading, respond to his preaching with threats of violence and hardness of heart. And this is earlier on in the life of Jeremiah. He says, how long shall the land mourn? Verse 4, and the herbs of every field wither for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. The beasts are consumed and the birds because they said he shall not see our last end. Jeremiah is grieved for the for the state of his nation. The land itself mourns when wickedness is performed there. We see it even, we saw it even in Genesis chapter six. Because of the sin of man, even the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air suffer judgment. Romans chapter eight tells us that the whole world, the earth itself is made subject to vanity and corruption because of the fallen state of man. And indeed, when the, the, a nation or a land is so filled up with corporate sins, it makes the land to stink before the Lord. You, remember, you recall what he had to say about the nations in Leviticus chapter 18, that they did all these gross and vile things that caused them to be an abomination in his sight. Yes, Gentile nations even were an abomination in the sight of the Lord because of their corporate sins. And the godly are grieved by these things. When we look upon our nation, when we see the backwards things that are done, uh, abuse of children, by teaching them that they can be girls when they're born boys and all of these things and the corruption that's, that's promoted throughout our land, we ought to mourn. And we ought to also recognize that we are provoking the Lord to anger. As a nation. And like the psalmist, rivers of water ought to run down our eyes because men have forsaken and trampled the law of God underfoot. And such it was for Jeremiah. The land mourned and the herbs of the field withered because of the wickedness of them that dwelled therein. And so the Lord, and so Jeremiah is calling upon the Lord to act. He's calling upon the Lord to act, to be faithful unto his word, to show that he is righteous. And that when his righteousness is shown in his judgments, then men will cease from their blasphemies and their provocations of the Lord. But now, as we move to verse 5, let's consider God's answer. God's answer to Jeremiah's complaint. In verse 5, he says, If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? God's answer to Jeremiah and his affliction is, If these men, if you've been running in a race with these men on foot, how are you going to survive racing with horses? God is saying, God is likening Jeremiah's present affliction to something small in comparison to something greater that's coming. And so the implication is that greater affliction is yet to come for Jeremiah, and that was indeed the case. The men at Ananath persecuted him, but the men at Jerusalem would do do so as well. If you continue reading through Jeremiah, you see that he's put in prison. He's beaten by the, the high priest. And sentenced Stephen to death. In fact, it had to be the civil magistrate that had to um, absolve him of his uh, accusations, while the the church was condemning him. And so, God is saying here to Jeremiah, if this affliction, which is relatively small compared to what is to come, is tiring you out, it is wearying you, is causing your fate, your your strength uh, to fail. How are you going to survive what is yet to come? Proverbs 24 verse 10 says, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And and this really tells us the reason why God sends afflictions unto us. It is to try us and to show us what's really in us, to show us uh, the state of our faith and what grace has been given to us. It's easy to sit back and say, I have faith that God answers prayer when everything is going fine in your life. It's easy to say you're patient when there's nothing, you're not suffering. But when you're in the furnace of affliction, then the dross uh, and the corruption of your nature begins to be burnt away and things, sins, unbelief, that was hidden inside you begins to come out and you see what you really are before the Lord. And this is the reason why the Lord sends his afflictions. To show us how much purging we yet need, how much indeed we need to be in that furnace of affliction. He says in Isaiah 48 that I have purified you, I've refined you, not with fire, but in the furnace of affliction. And so Jeremiah had worse yet to come. And so it would seem that God's answer is a rebuke to Jeremiah. He's saying, if this is what you're complaining about, what are you going to do when the worst thing comes? But really there's comfort implied here. There's comfort in this respect. That though great greater afflictions may come, God will give greater grace to persevere through them. God will give greater grace to persevere through them. And that really is what we ought to be seeking as Christians. Our our desire under affliction ought not to be merely to be relieved from the affliction, but to have grace to endure afflictions. We have to delight more in the presence and, and the strength of Christ that is made perfect in weakness than merely to have the affliction removed from us. This is what we learn from Second Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is uh, afflicted by a, a thorn in his side, a messenger from Satan, and he pleads with the Lord, petitions from him three times to take it away but the Lord would not. And he said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul was able to say that I glory in infirmity. I glory in my weakness because in those moments of weakness and of suffering and affliction, you're able to experience things about the Lord, to taste of the strength and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that you just can't do When you're at ease. Yes, you might know that God is good and that God is faithful, that God can provide intellectually, but until you've experienced that provision and that, that goodness, you won't really know it. This is why he said when he appeared unto Moses in the bush that by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he, they knew them, they knew him by his name, God Almighty, but by his name, Jehovah, he was not known unto them. It's not that they didn't know the word Jehovah. We read that they used the name Jehovah. But what that name represents, God's faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness, even when his people are under affliction, his unchangeableness. They didn't experience in the way that the children of Israel, as they were under the hard bondage of the Egyptians, were about to experience that God is a faithful God. The I am that I am that even Pharaoh cannot stand against that should all the great nations and the armies of the of the world stand against the people of God God will be so faithful to his covenant that he will crush those nations that he will smite them in his fir- in their firstborn for his mercy endureth forever psalm 136 God's faithfulness God's goodness what we are to learn about God is to be learned by experience it's to be learned by experience. The best way to know how delicious food can be is to eat it when you're really hungry. I'm not talking about you haven't eaten since 8 a.m. this morning. I'm talking about those that are starving in this world, that are dying to have a, a fresh meal. They really appreciate a warm meal because they have been through that experience that causes them to know its meaning. And the best way to know, to know God's faithfulness, His goodness, and His provision is to go through that furnace of affliction. This is what what exactly what we're taught in in Romans chapter five. In Romans chapter five, from verse three, we read, "And not only so, but we glory in tribulations." Also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience, experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. We glory in tribulations and trials and afflictions. Why? Because, friend, listen, the presence of God that can be known when you're in a trial, when you're in an affliction, when your heart is in tatters from sorrow and bitterness of soul, the presence of God that can be known in those times is sweeter than all the outward peace that you can imagine. To have all the abundance of earthly things is nothing in comparison to the presence of the Lord and His comforts, His strength that is made perfect in weakness. So we ought to be patient under these afflictions. and, uh, And when we're in these afflictions, Our chief concern ought to be to prefer Christ and his presence and his strength even more than the relief from the affliction. Yes, we can pray for those things and we ought to persevere in prayer. Christ taught us that men ought always to pray and not to faint. But if perhaps the petition is not granted, we ought to take comfort first and foremost in Christ's presence that is with us always, even unto the end of the age. In Christ's strength, that is made perfect in weakness. In Christ, whose presence is sweeter than our peace. And so as we consider this example of a godly complaint from Jeremiah the prophet, we ought to learn also to pour out our complaints before the This is why we have the Psalms given unto us. For example, Psalm 102. And the title of Psalm 102 is a a prayer of the afflicted. When he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. Yes, Christian, you ought, in fact, you must pour out your complaint before the Lord when you are afflicted. When you are overwhelmed. This is one of the reasons why these afflictions come to teach us to pray with desperation, in earnest. Yes, as Christians, we pray before meals, we pray before bedtimes. That's what we do. It's our routine. But there's a different kind of prayer when there's a crisis, when there's an emergency, when a loved one is sick, when a child is wayward. You begin to pray in earnest. You begin to pray with desperation. And so those routine prayers, which we ought to have, not coming against our routines, we ought to have those, but those routine prayers are not sufficient. And so the Lord will teach us to pray with desperation by sending afflictions that overwhelm us to show us that we are not sufficient in, in and of ourselves. You see, so long as we can rely upon ourselves to provide our own meals, to provide our own money and and, and house and all these things that we need, even to to. We trust in ourselves, our own skills as drivers to get our to, get to the des- destination safely. Well, once you've been traumatized by a car accident, you begin to recognize your need to pray before you get into the vehicle. Because it's God. And because of our corrupt nature, even as Christians, we often fall into the sin of self-reliance and carnal confidence, even unwittingly. We, like Jehoshaphat, who trusted in the physicians, trusted in the means, rather than in the God of the means, this, too, can be our downfall. And so the Lord will will send these afflictions, these, these chastenings, to wean us of these idolatrous distractions that cause us to put our trust in ourselves or in things, rather than in God himself. And, he, and so we ought to pour out our complaint before the Lord with an earnest and desperate heart. Be patient under afflictions. And most of all, prefer Christ's strength to endure afflictions over relief from the afflictions. The apostles counted it joy to suffer shame for the name of the Lord. It is a joyous thing to suffer for the name of the Lord, to be in tribulation, even to be in the furnace of affliction because he will be with us and he will make himself known to us in ways that really our hearts are dulled to when we are living at ease. And so as the children of the Lord, it is our right, it is our duty to pour out our complaint unto him when we are afflicted. But that those complaints must be godly, must be reverent, must be grounded in a faith in his promises. And even in the midst of praying for relief, we ought to really prefer Christ and his strength and his presence even to the answer of the particular petition that we pour before the Lord. And so as we go about this Christian pilgrimage, afflicted at times. In the day of adversity at times, we ought to remain rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ, who has promised to be with us always, who has given us the earnest of our inheritance, that is the Holy Spirit, as our comforter, a a comforter, The idea there is one that stands by as an advocate, a a close friend. The idea is almost as though you have been convicted on trial and you have a a, a lawyer and your best friend is a lawyer and, and he's there to comfort you, not just with words of affirmation, but because he's able to plead those things in the law that you're not necessarily aware of. We have a comforter that's able to apply unto us all the promises of God and to pray And to intercede for us in ways that we are ignorant of, Romans chapter 8 teaches us. We have the Holy Spirit to seal us into the day of redemption and to comfort us in times of affliction. And so, the the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is to be preferred above temporal, Relief from afflictions. And we ought to recognize that this really is God's aim in these things to teach us how desperately we need Him to refine and to purify us of our faults and our deficiencies and to make His strength known unto us that strength that is perfect in weakness. And so we can take heart with patience and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ who is faithful who stands by us in the furnace of affliction. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ, who took not on the nature of angels, but took on him the seed of Abraham, who suffers with us, who says... In all our afflictions, he is afflicted. So, Father, we pray that you would apply our hearts to know that grace, that precious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves our souls, that comforts us in our afflictions, that gives us hope for eternity. Be with us, we pray, as we walk in this pilgrimage, as we turn our eyes heavenward where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We pray, O Father, that you would strengthen us in all of our afflictions and make your strength known unto us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.